Well, here we go. First Corinthians chapter 12. We've made it to chapter 12. Quite an accomplishment. And um, we're going to dive right into it. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Those of you who know the scriptures pretty well know that this passage that we're coming up on has generated what is perhaps the most significant dividing line among evangelical Christians. It's the line that exists between the Pentecostal slash charismatic branch of Christianity and the non-Pentecostal, non-charismatic branch of Christianity. Specifically, the matter of whether or not you believe that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit are still in operation today. That's the issue about which these groups disagree. And I think it's become probably the most popular way of making a distinction among evangelical Christians. So tens of millions of believers all around the globe would say, I believe that the miraculous gifts are still being given today, still functional today. And so they would check the box that says Pentecostal or charismatic. And tens of millions of Christians all around the globe would say, well, I'm not so sure about that. Don't classify me among those groups of Pentecostals or charismatics. And the difference is due in large part to having different interpretations of these sections of 1 Corinthians that we're going to be taking on uh, over the course of the next several months. In one sense, it's kind of sad. It's one thing if people who share the same love for Christ and devotion to the Word of God have different interpretations of Scripture. That happens all the time. But if we're defining ourselves by which camp we're in and who we're against, I'm not so sure that Jesus is real happy with that. After all, isn't he the one who prayed that his church would be one and would be united? Thankfully, over the past several decades, I've seen some signs that in the larger body of Christ, this breach is beginning to be healed by the great physician. A view is emerging and gaining acceptance that moderates the extreme views of the old-style hardline Pentecostals and Charismatics and moderates the extreme views of the strict cessationists. And I've come to believe that it's a view worth considering. Historically, if you've been around New Life for a while, you would know that New Life has never considered itself to be a charismatic church, nor has it been viewed that way by others. This is probably due to the fact that the founders of this church, myself included, were schooled in the cessationist point of view and embraced that perspective. And if you don't even know what that word means, that's fine. We'll get into it in chapter 13. Probably also due to the fact that several of the church's founders had, what shall we say, less than positive experiences with the charismatic movement early on, and that colored our thinking about this issue. About 10 years ago, our senior pastor at the time took the rest of us pastors through an exploration and a study of the different views in Christianity on this issue, and after much discussion and prayer, we landed on a stance or a position that was known as the open but cautious view towards the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. This was a particularly significant move for him, for our senior pastor at the time, because he had a particularly negative experience during his teen years with charismatics, and by his own admission, that tainted his thinking about it. So on paper, at least, this has been our stance, our position for the last decade or so, open to the miraculous gifts, but cautious about their potential for abuse. In practice, the way that this is fleshed out 
is basically to say, hey, if you're a Christian and you love Jesus and you speak in tongues, we're cool with that. We would just ask you not to exercise that gift publicly, but, but privately. Because in our church, with our history and where we've come from, to exercise it publicly in a worship gathering would probably be confusing to a lot of people and divisive, and we know that unity is very important to the Lord. You know, what can easily get lost in this discussion is the 80 to 90% of teaching on spiritual gifts that all Christians actually agree on and are in sync with, in alignment with. Nearly all Christians everywhere agree that gifts of mercy and helps and administration and serving and giving and teaching and discernment and wisdom and knowledge and leading and encouragement and faith and shepherding and other gifts are are all in operation today, still being given by God to his church. Nearly every Christian agrees about that. But the differences are usually around those gifts that are more miraculous in nature, sometimes called the sign gifts. So let's get into it, okay? Today is going to feel more like an introduction, and once again, I have to say that when I'm done, you're going to be left with more unanswered questions. But just remember that this topic is basically the subject of the next three chapters, chapter 12, 13, and 14 in 1 Corinthians. So we'll get there. Here's the flow of Paul's thinking in these chapters, okay? In chapter 12, Paul is going to say that it's good for believers in Jesus to use all of the spiritual gifts that they've been given by God. In chapter 13, he's going to say it's even better to use those gifts in love, that love trumps all. And in chapter 14, he's going to contend that using our gifts in love means that when we come together for worship, we're speaking in an intelligible manner and conducting ourselves in an orderly fashion. That's the flow of these next three chapters. The miraculous gifts in particular are discussed in great detail in chapters 13 and 14. So I'm not going to spend much time on them today, okay? I know that might disappoint you, but we're going to get there. I promise you, we will get there. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 together. Paul wrote this. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Some translations say ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's a very important verse. I encourage you to underline that. The reason the gifts were given, for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Got it? There's a lot there. A lot there. Now we know that Paul is addressing issues that had been brought up by this church in a letter that they'd sent him. Apparently they had some questions about the relationship between spirituality and spiritual gifts. We don't know exactly what their question was because we don't have their letter. But we can surmise, we can deduce 
what their question was by how Paul responded. I think it probably went something like this. Hey, Paul, if someone in our congregation is extremely gifted spiritually, does that mean that they are extremely spiritual? What's the correlation? What's the relationship between spirituality, true spirituality, and having spiritual gifts? I think that's what their question was about. From his response, we can note several things. And if you don't have a study guide, go ahead and pull that out of your worship folder so you can follow along with us. Number one, true spirituality is often misunderstood. That's where he begins. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brother, I do not want you to be uninformed, ignorant, confused. It's interesting, though. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, but have noticed that the word gifts is not in the original language. Okay, it was inserted by the translators. The Greek word is pneumatica, which simply means spiritual things or things of the spirit or spirituality. So what he was saying is that he did not want them or us to be uninformed or ignorant about spiritual things. The implication is what? That true spirituality is often misunderstood, even by Christians. For example, many Christians might believe that just because a person possesses a dynamic spiritual gift, that that means they're really spiritual, really close to God. But I would say this, you can be both extremely gifted and extremely unspiritual. You know, I don't like to beat up on people generally, except a few every now and then. But uh, back in 2004, on my study break, I took some time. I went out to Colorado Springs, and I went to New Life Church of Colorado Springs, pastored by a guy named Ted Haggard. You ever heard of him? I heard him preach. I heard him speak. Dynamic, gifted preacher of the word of God. It was amazing. And yet, wasn't this the same guy who just a few years later, we discovered that he had this secret sin thing going on in his life? You see, you can be extremely gifted, but extremely unspiritual. One man put it this way, the gift is greater than the man. And I've seen that to be true over and over again. So Paul says, don't be confused about this. He's going to enlighten us about the nature of true spirituality and give us an accurate understanding of the nature and role of spiritual gifts in the church. Here's the second principle found in verses 2 and 3. The Holy Spirit, listen, would never, ever lead someone to curse Jesus, only to exalt Jesus. Verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, how many of you were pagans at one time? You should all raise your hand. We were all pagans, okay? Far from God. When you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However you were led. Mute meaning dumb. They couldn't speak. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, anathema, accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, my question was, why did Paul even have to say this? Was that going on? And I read all the commentaries, and most commentators believe that it actually was. That apparently a church member in that church had actually cursed Jesus while claiming to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine that? And speculation abounds as to how it actually happened. Was it, did it happen in a worship service? Did someone like cry out in a, in a worship gathering? Was it someone who was very gifted in that church or very well respected? Some scholars think that this refers to some leftover practice from their days of worshiping idols in the pagan temples where people would get whipped up into a frenzy and start speaking ecstatically and 
All kinds of crazy things were said. Some scholars believe that was brought over into their church worship. Thus, the reference to their former life in paganism. The truth is, we don't know exactly for sure how this fleshed out in that congregation. What we do know is that after it happened, it made some of the Corinthians wonder, can you actually say Jesus is cursed and still be filled with the Holy Spirit? And Paul is quick to answer, isn't he? No! (laughs) No way! That individual might have been under the control of a spirit, a spirit, a a demonic spirit, but certainly not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would never influence someone to even diminish Jesus, much less curse him. You might recall Jesus' teaching in John 16, 14, when he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he will, do you remember? Glorify me. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, to lift up Jesus, to exalt Jesus, to point people to Jesus. He would never tear Jesus down. In fact, that's one way you know that you have the Holy Spirit in you. You have a high view of Jesus. May I just remind all of us, all of us today, as I like to do from time to time, that really it is all about Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. Human history is all about Jesus. The Bible is all about Jesus. The church is all about Jesus. History is his story, isn't it? It's all about Jesus. Heaven, hell, the church, the kingdom, my life, your life. It's all about Jesus. And maybe you're here today and you're thinking, why? Well, I thought it was all about me. And I thought Jesus was all about me. And I want to remind you that when the curtain opens at the dawn of eternity, you know who's going to be on center stage? Not me. Not you. Jesus. The Lamb of God the lion of the tribe of Judah, receiving the deserved praise from billions and billions of creatures. See, you can choose to be the star of your own little itty-bitty story, or you can join the grand story of God where the star has already been selected. It's Jesus. Jesus the Christ. You say, why does Jesus, why does he get all the glory? Do you remember what we saw last weekend depicted in that video? That's why. Because the Father saw the immense suffering that Jesus went through for love. And he said, I'm going to exalt my son. I'm going to give him the name that's above every name. I'm going to put all things under his feet in the kingdom age. That's why Jesus deserves all the praise and all the glory. It's all about him. I think Paul was giving a kind of test here to help people know who really has the Holy Spirit. He's saying, if you really have the Holy Spirit, you're going to be all about Jesus. And if you're all about Jesus, it's because you've got the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit was sent to glorify Jesus Christ. The sooner we get that straight, the better off we'll be. Well, Paul's going to turn his attention now to how God works through his spirit in his church to exalt Jesus, to empower the church, to be the body of Christ in the world. And this is a beautiful thing. Listen to verses 4 through 6. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So his third point is this, the same God produces all the variety of spiritual gifts, ministries, and effects seen in the church. They all have one source, the one true God. 
Now, did you notice when I read through there, did you notice the Trinity? Did you pick up on that? See, it says Spirit, the same Spirit, and then verse 5, the same Lord. That's referring to Jesus, the Lord, and then in verse 6, the same God. Each member of the Trinity is active and engaged in the work of the church. They're working together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, working together just like they did in creation and just like they did in the plan of redemption. They work together in the church to fulfill their holy purposes. You say, what are they doing? Well, it tells us. Giving gifts, creating ministries, empowering activities. That's what they're doing to carry out their work. First thing he talks about is gifts. He says there are varieties of gifts, and that is the Greek word charismata. That's where we get the word charismatic, charismata. We'll talk about this word a lot in the next few chapters. It literally means grace gifts, charismata. Charis is grace. Grace gifts, gifts bestowed by the grace of God. Our God is a gift-giving God. Often they're called spiritual gifts, and in this context it refers to special abilities, special abilities now given to believers by the Holy Spirit to express the character of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and to build up the body of Christ, to bless the body. Paul says it's the same Spirit who gives believers all the various kinds of giftings that you see in the church. All come from one source, the Holy Spirit. He's going to tell us more about that in a minute. Then he says there are various kinds of service. That's the word diakonia, from which we get our term deacon. It refers to serving the Lord in a ministry. And Paul is telling us that the Lord Jesus creates ministries in his church through which he carries out his work in people's lives. The implication is that we should use our gifts that we've been given by the Spirit to serve Christ in a ministry. That's what they were given for. And again, he says, there's a variety of ministries. So here in our setting, we ought to thank God for the variety of ministries that Jesus has created among us. He's created ministries to children and students and young adults, men, women, married couples, ministries to people who are grieving a loss, ministries to addicts. There are counseling ministries, comforting ministries, teaching ministries, prayer ministries, a wonderful ministry called Inner Healing. There are adoption ministries, shepherding ministries, discipling, mentoring ministries, all kinds of ministries and more to come. And Paul says it's the work of Jesus to call gifted people into serving his body in a ministry. And then he says there are various activities. So gifts, service or ministries, and then activities. But the same God who empowers them all in everyone. That word activities is the word energemata, energemata, energies. Effects, workings, outcomes. It seems to refer to the varying levels of impact that God gives. So some people exercise their gifts and they minister to one or two people. And that's fine. That's by the design of God. Some people use their gifts to minister to 15 or 20 people. Some to 50 or 100. Some to hundreds or thousands. Or if you're Billy Graham or Franklin Graham, it's to millions. And God does that. God arranges the levels of impact through the workings of his gifts in the body of Christ. Don't miss the main point, though. There are varieties of gifts and ministries and levels of impact, but they all come from one source, the same Lord. They're all produced by the same God. Everything comes from God. 
That's why it doesn't make sense. That's why it's not smart or spiritual to boast and brag about the gifts that you've been given. Or to elevate other people with the more noticeable, showy gifts and put them on a pedestal and turn them into superstars. Or to downplay the service and ministry and gifts of those who serve more behind the scenes and don't get a lot of applause. Earlier in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul said, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast and brag as if you didn't? See, it all comes from God. It all comes from Him. The other thing this tells us is, I think, it reminds us of the creative side of our God who loves variety and diversity. And this shouldn't surprise us because it's the same God who creates the snowflakes individually, unique. It's the same God who gives us the beautiful kaleidoscope of fall colors here in central Ohio every fall that just takes our breath away. It's the same God who created people of every size and shape and color and hue. And that same God distributes spiritual gifts and ministries and effects to reflect his diversity and his love for variety. Do you know God is not a fan of cookie-cutter Christianity? Cookie-cutter Christians? He's not. Or churches. He loves variety. He loves diversity. It was never his intent that all of his people look alike, walk alike, talk alike, serve alike, minister alike, be in the exact same place. No. He loves diversity and then he loves bringing unity and oneness out of diversity. That reflects his glory. Because he is diverse and yet united three in one, reflects his character. Well, now Paul amplifies this even more, especially with respect to gifts. And his fourth point is this. God's Spirit distributes a wide variety of spiritual gifts to believers for the good of the church. For the good of the church. Verse 7, he says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good to bless the church, to build up the whole church. And then he lists those gifts, a variety of gifts, in verses 8 through 10. And then in 11, he says, these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So let me point out four things here, and then we're going to look at several of the gifts together, okay? First thing I see under this is this. We need to know this. Spiritual gifts, as I said, are distributed for a purpose. They were given for a purpose, to build up the body of Christ for the common good. He's going to say it over and over again. Gifts are to profit the whole group, not to elevate the individual. If you use your spiritual gifts or I use mine to showcase myself, to draw attention to myself, to become a superstar or to feel superior over others, that is a terrible misuse of spiritual gifts. Remember, they all came from God anyway. They have been given to bless and build up the body of Christ. In 14, verse 12, he says, Excel in gifts that build up the church. And he's going to say that over and over again. Second, spiritual gifts are very diverse. Now, you see the list of gifts given here in chapter 12. Do you have on your outline a little table with, you know, in a real tiny font that you need reading glasses to even read it? See that? Here it is. These are five different places in the New Testament where there are spiritual gifts listed. These lists of spiritual gifts. And they're very diverse, but there's one thing that I notice immediately when I read through these lists of gifts. You know what it is? 
They're not all the same. The lists are all different. And that leads me to believe that these are, this, these are not exhaustive lists. If there were only like seven gifts, wouldn't all the lists be the same? Like, here's the big seven. And so where I'm at, my point of view is that I believe that there are a variety of gifts, maybe dozens, maybe hundreds of spiritual gifts. That's just where I'm at. Because these lists are not identical. Then note that spiritual gifts are given to every single believer. He apportions them to each one individually, it says. So I need to tell you today, you're a gifted person. If you know Jesus Christ, if you're in the family, you're a gifted person. You've been given at least one gift. Some of you have been given one, some two, some three. Some of you are multi-gifted. And with that giftedness comes a stewardship, a responsibility to use those gifts for the glory of God. So... You're gifted. So turn to your neighbor there, if you would, and just look at them in the eye and say, you're a gifted dude or dudette, as the case may be. And if they, you know, get all high and mighty about it and say, yeah, you're right, you know, I'm pretty awesome. Awesomeness in a body, that's me. Then that's not good. (laughs) They need to be humbled and God will do that. Spiritual gifts are given to every believer. And then finally, note this, spiritual gifts are sovereignly bestowed. It says he gives to each one individually as he wills. So you have the d- divine conductor looking at his church all over the globe or in Gehanna, and he's distributing gifts individually to believers, some two, some get three, some four, some, everybody at least one. And he does it according to his own purposes They're given sovereignly by God. And we ought to be grateful for that. Well, still with me? Are you still with me? Okay. Uh, In our our short time that remains, I want to profile the first three gifts that are listed here in 1 Corinthians 12. Wisdom, knowledge, and faith. And these are wonderful gifts, and some of you have them. And I'm praying that God will confirm that in your heart today if you have one of these gifts. Now, the other gifts listed here are mentioned later in chapters 12 and 13 and 14, and we'll dive into them later at a future date when we can really give them our full attention, okay? Let's discover what we can about these three gifts. They're not defined here clearly for us in this passage. We must discern their description and meaning from the surrounding context, from other scripture, and from the experience of the church throughout history. And I'm indebted to other pastors and other scholars for these definitions. Here's my understanding of what these gifts appear to be. First, the gift of wisdom. Wisdom. Say that with me. Wisdom. The utterance of wisdom, it says, or some translations, the word of wisdom. You say, what is that? What's the gift of wisdom? How does that play out in someone's life? Well, I believe that it is unique insight. People have been given this unique ability to have insight into people, and situations that includes an understanding of how God's word is best applied to that situation and the ability to speak clearly into the situation. That's wisdom. Seeing life from God's perspective and having the ability to apply the truth of God's word to life in a very practical way. Do you know anybody like that? Does somebody come to your mind when you think of, man, that person has wisdom? People with this gift often have the ability to synthesize biblical truth, apply it to people's lives so they make good choices and avoid foolishness, foolish mistakes. 
Wisdom versus foolishness. Today, these people function well as coaches, advisors, mentors, counselors, consultants. By the way, all of the spiritual gifts were embodied in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, weren't they? Was he a wise person? (laughs) I mean, even as a kid, it says he was filled with wisdom. At age 12, he confounded the religious scholars and rabbis of his day. Remember that in the temple? Luke 2 tells us he grew in wisdom. When he started his public ministry, crowds who heard him teach said, What is this wisdom that has been given him? Mark 6, 2. In Matthew 12, Jesus said that he was wiser than Solomon. And he was right. In Luke 21, he said, I'm going to give you words of wisdom. And he is actually called in 1 Corinthians 1, the wisdom of God. Christ, the wisdom of God. So Jesus embodied wisdom. And now he's given this gift of wisdom to individuals in his church. Well, I wonder, do you have this gift? Let me give you some questions to think about for yourself or maybe others that you know. Do you have the gift of wisdom? When studying God's word, do you find that you discover the meaning and its implications before other people do? Do you seem to understand things about God's word that other believers with the same background and experience don't understand? Are you able to apply biblical truth in a practical way to help counsel others to make wise decisions? And do you get frustrated when people make dumb, foolish decisions when if they'd come to you, you could have helped them avoid that? It's like, oh, you married that guy? Why didn't you come to me first? You made that purchase? You went into debt for that? You went, you know, you took this job? Oh, man. One way you know if people have the gift of wisdom is that people seek them out. People go to them. When people are facing decisions in their lives, they're thinking, oh, you know what, I'm going to go check this with so-and-so first just to make sure that I'm thinking correctly about this. That is an indication that person has the gift of wisdom. It's a wonderful gift. May their tribe increase in our church. Do you find that when you do counsel people, God the Spirit gives you wisdom to share with them from Scripture, which they then accept as God's truth to them through you? You say, okay, if I have this gift, where, what ministries could I serve in? And this gift is valuable in many different kinds of ministries. Small group leaders. Great to have a person with the gift of wisdom leading your small group. Spiritual mentor, a life coach, an advisor, a counselor, a prayer partner, a student ministries servant. Man, we need people with the gift of wisdom mingling with our middle schoolers and high schoolers. Amen? Helping them learn how to live wisely from God's perspective. These kind of folks are needed in a small group, I might add, to help group members skillfully apply God's word to daily life, live wisely, and grow to love the word of God. The gift of wisdom. Second gift, the gift of knowledge. Now, some people would take this gift and place it in the category of the miraculous gifts. And they they view it kind of like this. You know, some guy like me is up here saying, okay, it's coming to me now. There's someone in the room. It's a word of knowledge here. Someone in the room has um, pain in their lower, you know, that kind of thing. I don't really see any evidence in Scripture that that, what I just described, is the gift of knowledge. If such a gift does exist, I would probably categorize it as part of the gift of prophecy. Here's my best take on what the gift of knowledge is. The desire and ability to research, remember, and make effective use of a variety of information on a number of diverse subjects. In other words, 
the geeks among us. You know what I'm talking about? Those of you who love to study, love to learn, you're not content with surface answers to questions, you love to dig deep. When the Amazon.com guy shows up at your door with another box of books, you love books. You're going, this is my happy day. Especially if the books were written by dead guys, you know, then you really love that. You love learning. You love footnotes. The rest of you, that's the little thing in tiny print at the bottom of the page. But someone with a gift of knowledge is like, oh, I love footnotes and appendices. When a book says there's an appendix in the back, they're like, woohoo, glory to God, I get to read the appendices. You know that that person is a little strange and that they have the gift of knowledge. They love to dive deep, go in the deep end, mine the depths of the Word of God, and they love to compile their findings so that it benefits others. Their focused study helps other people. Jesus certainly had this gift. He quoted the Old Testament Scripture time and time and time again. He was filled with the Word of God. Do you have this gift, the gift of knowledge? Let me ask you some questions. Do you love to study? Do you have a good memory that retains and compiles lots of information? Have other people frequently pointed out your ability to know and understand the Word of God? And do they come to you with difficult questions that they know you're going to answer or you'll be able to find the answer for them? That could be a sign. In studying the the Word of God, have you found that new insights and understanding of difficult subjects seems to come easy to you? And are, are you frustrated when you hear bad teaching from a teacher who hasn't done their homework? And you send them emails and more emails and you list 50 websites that they need to go to to do their homework so that they teach well. That's a blessing in the body of Christ. It is. Thank God for these people with the gift of knowledge. You say, well, I, I might have that gift. What, where could I serve? What kinds of ministries? Well, how about as a spiritual mentor to someone, to a younger believer? Because your knowledge and understanding of the word can help them. How about as a discovery class teacher in our church or a SOMA teacher, a research assistant, a Bible study leader, a curriculum developer? All of these things and more. I think these folks are a blessing to have in small groups because they challenge group members, don't they, to go deeper in the Word, to not settle for the surface answers, to mine the depths, to bring out the deeper meanings, and to curb false teaching, which can crop up in small group settings. The gift of wisdom, the gift of knowledge, and the last one in our few remaining moments, the gift of faith. The gift of faith. Now, you look at that and you think, well, I thought all Christians have faith. And and all Christians do have faith. But to some, the Spirit has given a truckload of faith. They're just filled with faith. I believe this is the, the gift of having extraordinary confidence in God that is unshakable despite obstacles. These people believe in God. And it includes the special ability to confidently ask and believe God for things that will advance God's purposes even when other people think it's impossible. This is a gift of faith. Oh, it's a great gift. I love people with the gift of faith. They believe God. They've been given this gift to trust Him in difficult, even impossible situations when others are are ready to give up. Oftentimes they're visionaries who pray big prayers and dream big dreams. And ask God for huge, God-sized things because they believe that God can do it. And they have a list of answers to prayer in their prayer notebooks that 
show the track record of history that they have with God and Him answering their big prayers. They believe in God. They want God to be glorified through His accomplishing of huge things. They love the Word of God and they're grounded in the Word and they believe what the Word says about God and what He can do. Their motto is, nothing is impossible with God. People with a gift of faith. Did Jesus have faith? Do we see faith in the life of Jesus? (laughs) And his whole life and ministry could be characterized by his trust in the Father and his obedience in carrying out the Father's will, trusting that God would raise him from the dead on the backside of the cross and take him back to heaven. The gift of faith. You know, people with this gift, when they hear about us, you know, wanting to plant 20 churches in 20 years, they go, how about 200, 2,000, 20,000, you know, big. God is big, big enough to do beyond what we could ask or imagine. God, give us more people with the gift of faith. Do you have this gift? Some questions to think about. Do you view obstacles as opportunities to trust God for something big? Do you find yourself frequently boasting about the power of God, bragging on God and what he can do because you've seen him do it? Do you get motivated by new ministries? Do you find yourself feeling opposed to anybody who says that it can't be done? And you go, oh, you think it can't be done, huh? You watch. You watch and see what God's going to do. You find other believers coming to you for hope when they face overwhelming situations in their lives. Do you have an effective prayer life with many wonderful answers to prayer that were impossible from a human point of view, but God did it? And you love to tell people about it. It's the gift of faith. Ministry roles for people with the gift of faith? Many, many. A lot of them are leadership roles. A lot of leaders have a gift of faith. Small group leader, prayer ministry leader. Starting up new ministries. Because oftentimes these people are visionary. They see things. They see what God can do. Well, these folks are needed in a small group to inspire vision, to help stretch the faith of other group members, to lead out in praying bold prayers of faith for God to show himself strong within the group. The gift of wisdom, the gift of knowledge, the gift of faith. I want to ask you just, there's a lot of gifts, but we focused on these three. How many of you, and you're not bragging by acknowledging this, but you would raise your hand and say, I think, I think that, The Spirit of God has given me one of these three gifts. I'm just curious. Would you lift your hands? Wisdom, knowledge, or faith? Excellent. About like in the last service. So a lot of you. Praise God for that. Thank God for giving you that gift. And I encourage you to use it. To use it. Well, in 60 seconds, closed circuit for New Life Church. Number one. May I ask you to affirm the gifts that you see in other people? Some people need to hear that. They suspect maybe God's given me this gift, but they need confirmation from others. Would you, this week and as we go through this series, be alert to situations where you can speak into someone's life and say, I see this in you. I see this in you. I think God's given you this gift. That could be what God uses to just propel that person forward into serving Christ in ministry. Second, If you're wondering where to start in all this, I would say begin by serving where there's a need. Serve outside of your giftedness, especially to start. 
Say, I don't know where I'm supposed to be and all that. Just listen to where there's a need and jump in and serve. Yeah, you've got a sweet spot somewhere where God's going to get you to over time, but start by just offering yourself to serve anywhere. Most of the gifts that we'll look at can be used in a variety of different ministries. There's not just a one-to-one correspondence. And third, you know, we had a picture this morning of this orchestra up here with a vast array of talents and gifts and a whole variety of different instruments, listening to one conductor sitting right there and pulling all that together to produce beautiful symphonic sounds. That's the picture of what God wants his church to be like. With every individual offering their unique gifts and contribution to the whole, following the one conductor and producing beautiful kingdom music together. And so my third encouragement to you is to find your place in the divine orchestra of God and play your notes skillfully so that all may hear and enjoy the beautiful symphony of God and praise the glorious conductor. Amen? That's what we want to be. Well, let's pray together. In just a moment, we're going to have a special prayer time, as I mentioned earlier, but let's, let's take a moment first and ask God to seal this in our hearts. Lord, You are the great conductor. You've distributed gifts according to your will. Everybody in this room who knows you has at least one gift, Lord. May we come into an understanding and awareness of how you've gifted us. And may we have a heart to serve wherever you've called us into whatever ministry you've called us. May we say yes to you, Jesus. Produce beautiful music pleasing to you through this church. I pray in your name.